My name is Mark Vicente. I'm a director, producer, writer, and troublemaker. I'm not totally certain if the trouble finds me or I find it. I'm most known as the director of the film What the Bleep Do We Know, and as one of the Nixium whistleblowers featured in the HBO series The Vow. Let's just say I know a thing or two about cults. I don't consider myself a cult expert, but I'm definitely an expert in being screwed over, waking up, and knowing how to spot them. And let me tell you, they're everywhere. As you'll hear, I have a pretty salty approach to most things, and I'm utterly fascinated by the patterns in human behavior that create the best and the worst in society. I'm part geek, part rebel, and pissed off about a whole bunch of things. Join me as I unpack a whole range of topics to do with psychology, spirituality, consciousness, morality, cults, narcissistic abuse, science, filmmaking, and philosophy. You never quite know what you're going to get, as it really does depend on what the fuck is on my mind. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. This is going to be my debrief of episode 6 of The Vow Season 2. Before I get stuck into the episode, though, there's a few things I wanted to chat about. Um, I got amazing messages from people saying, please take a break. You know, you don't have to be doing this. And you're right, I don't have to be doing this. I, and I certainly appreciate those messages. You know, I, can't, I have this compulsion, and it's a compulsion. It's different than the compulsion I had, you know, in 2017, 18, 19. The sort of, I have to get everybody out, we have to do this. It's a different impulse now. It's an urgent, still urgent desire to, to try to talk about the pattern of these kinds of things. Because I really do believe, uh, as the world is going in the direction it's currently going, we, we need to be able to study how these things work. Because there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of cults and I think there's more and more emerging so it's super important I think another part of it is I'm still I'm still digging into things that are still unresolved and I'm I'm struggling to explain even to myself why it's so traumatic I mean there's the obvious reasons you know there was all this trauma that a lot of people went through there's this the, the trauma of trying to tell everybody and nobody believing us and everyone turning against us and all those things. But there are these unresolved feelings that I have as I watch the episodes because I'm seeing, and I've said this before, I'm seeing people that I had very, very deep relationships with. And I'm still trying to figure out, I guess, emotionally maybe, why they don't why they don't see it and and also I, I struggled because I, I'm still very attached I think to some of the people that left and hid under a rock who just refused to talk uh, to me or to to any of us and I'm still struggling with that I have these these bonds with people that might take a, a long time to let go I no longer have the desire to like I have to talk to them you know we have to sort of have a relationship again but I'm still trying to mine the complexities of, of being in a situation where you have these very deep friendships with people um, and they're broken. And I, I don't know how to quite explain it. And perhaps it is sort of addictive to some degree, but I'm still, I'm still mystified by a great many things. And I'm still trying to figure things out for myself as well. Uh, the, the sort of the, the mindset that I had 
when I was in, I'm still trying to figure things out and I'm still trying to see, am I still susceptible to those things? Um, certainly the trolls on social media uh, suggest that I'm going to definitely join another cult. You know what, trolls, crawl back into your hole. So I think I don't yet have the words for for what I'm struggling with. And may, you know, maybe there's, there's trauma specialists out there that, that maybe do have the words and you can certainly share with me you know, what you think they are because I, I'm finding I'm getting incredibly valuable information from people that are writing in like either on, on YouTube or on Instagram. Um, incredibly important information that they're sharing with me that's really helping me sort of defrag everything. So it's a weird thing doing these debriefs Yes, it's extremely difficult. Yes, it is extremely uh, traumatizing. But I am making sense of more and more things. I mean, we're, we're moving into week six now of season two. And I have processed a lot of stuff. And look, this last week, yeah, it was challenging. But you know what? I, I took some time off. I, I sat with myself. Um, I've been having incredibly deep dreams, incredibly deep dreams where I've been processing a lot of stuff. Like I'm back with everybody again, but it doesn't feel so much like what the fuck am I doing here? It feels like I'm aware of everything in my dream. It's not, it's not, it's not completely a lucid dream, but I am aware in the dream. So that, that quality of the dreaming has changed. Um, and I'm also finding certain angers that I had are starting to dissipate. Not that I'm not horrified. I am, um, still horrified. And I hope the horror never goes away. I hope I will always be horrified at the things that occurred. Um, because I don't know, I think in some, I think that's a sign of a conscience. I mean, I think if you don't give a shit anymore, that's, that's a huge problem. And I definitely do give a shit, you know, definitely. There's so much I want to talk about. And I, and I find when I, you know, sort of get behind the mic, I just forget shit. So I, I'm trying to make notes as I go. One thing some of you know is that I'm making a film right now with some amazing people about narcissism, narcissistic abuse, trauma bonding, that kind of thing. It's called Empathy Not Included. And I wanted to reach out to, to the audience and tell you guys I'm still looking for certain kinds of stories and maybe you can help. What I'm looking for are stories about narcissistic abuse in the workplace. So if you have any stories like that yourself or you know of people, please go to my website to this URL markvicente.com forward slash your story. That's www.markvicente.com forward slash your story. And please put that story in there. The other thing that we're also looking for are stories uh, from men who have been narcissistically abused by women. Now, it tends to be rare, but, but it, it does happen. Um, if you yourself have a story like that, or you know somebody that has a story, please, again, go to that URL or refer the other person to that URL. Um, we have found guys are very reticent to talk about these kinds of stories. But as you know, men can be abused as well. It's a different kind of abuse. So we really are looking for those, those two categories of stories. So I would love your help on that. So in no particular order, here are a bunch of thoughts that I've been thinking about this week. Um, Something that maybe abusers know, maybe, is that if they do something so incredibly fucked up and far-fetched, most people will not believe it's actually happening. So in the case of, of Nick Simon Ranieri, in 2017, when us whistleblowers were trying to tell people and you know, saying, look, they're branding women, people were like, that's just stupid. That's just dumb. 
most people we spoke to at first were like, that that doesn't even fit into their box of what they think is possible. So they just discounted it. And it got me thinking that the more ridiculous the thing, the more insane the thing, the more dark the thing that's being done, the less people will believe it. There seems to be this mental barrier in people's minds that something that is so heinous and so evil they just can't comprehend that it's actually happening. They sort of put it in the, in, the, in the box or the safe space of that happens in the movies, that happens on television. Maybe you read about some fucked up shit in the newspaper, but that's not happening in the thing we're doing. So they just can't go there. And there's this wall of denial that people go through and they immediately discount it. Now, I've been thinking to myself, do the abusers know that? And is that what gives them a certain level of confidence that they can just keep on doing the thing because nobody will believe them. I do know of some sociopaths and psychopaths who have said that. They've said, look, I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing because most people will never believe it's possible so I can get away with it. I do think some of them do think that way. And so I've just been wondering about that. You know, we, we are, as a society, I think, how can I say this? There are things as a society I think we need to uh, mature in. And that is really acknowledging that evil does exist and not just whitewashing it. This is a huge problem that I'm seeing. Nobody wants to think that their guy or their gal or their leader or their whatever is doing awful evil things. And sometimes they are. And this this wall of denial is what allows these abusers to continue doing some of the really awful shit they're doing. Another thing I was thinking about is I'm, I guess with the, the, um, the vow audience... Um, and people that have been following this case, I think it might be dawning on people um, how fucking horrifying the level of darkness was that we uncovered in 2017. Um, it's so disturbing. And, you know, Bonnie and myself and Sarah and Nippy were discovering all these things, and we were trying to tell people what was going on, but they wouldn't believe it, and they didn't quite get the darkness because a lot of it hadn't come out yet in court. So they were like, well, what's the big deal? It's just a sorority. It's just this. It's just that. And we were living with the, the, the emotional knowledge of, of how fucking bad it was. So 2017, 2018, 2019, up until the trial, we were living with this incredible horror. And I've, and I've really started to realize, certainly for myself, I think it's the case for, for a lot of us, that when you live with that kind of horror inside of you and you're not being believed, it, it takes a hell of a toll on you. And I think, as you guys are seeing in, in season two, the, the, the level of depravity, this is the thing that we were living with, the, the, the realization that this is what was, was going on was so fucking mind-fucking, you know? And, and I know it did all kinds of things to my immune system, to my psyche, to my psychology. There were days that I, actually weeks, that I felt completely fucking crazy. You know, and thank goodness for, for my, in, in the case of myself, for Bonnie, for the psychologist and psychiatrist that I was working with and all the other people that were helping because I felt fucking like a lunatic, like the whole world didn't make sense. Why were people not upset? It seemed really, really clear to me. So I think a lot of people are seeing, even if you, you know, read the court transcripts, when you see it come to life in the vow season two, it, it's really fucking disturbing. And look, it's interesting. I know there are people out there on social media saying, what's the big deal? And I do have to wonder about, um, 
you know, do they have empathy deficit or something? Like, what the fuck is going on there? That's it's pretty. I mean, I I get it. I, I get that they're either deeply dissociated or they have empathy deficit. But as somebody that that does feel those things, it's it's kind of mystifying. Intellectually, I get it. Emotionally, I just don't get it. There are still a few kinds of questions I get from people of like, how did you fall for it? How did you get drawn in? And, you know, look, every time I get them, I just feel enraged um, because I'm like, fucking study something. Just study the shit. It's like really obvious. But it did get me thinking, I guess a question I have for, for people in general is, have you ever believed in something or believed in someone and then found out they lied? You know, and how were you drawn in to that person um, that later you realized lied? Uh, why did you not see it? I mean, it's always good to put yourself in that position. And then the other thing I started thinking about, we live in a society that celebrates psychopathy. Um, our entertainment industry fantasizes about and celebrates sociopathy and psychopathy. You know, I saw a film the other day, I'm not going to mention the name because I want to diss on the filmmakers, but, you know, it's one of these super action, big budget, massive, you know, major Hollywood stars movies. And um, the, the killings are just so like, whatever. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm, it's like I had a fart and now I shot somebody and I did this and like a, killing was just nothing. And I realized that, that I don't know about every country, certainly in the case of, of America, where a lot of this entertainment comes from, there is a kind of yearning if you look at the filmmaking, there's the sort of yearning for not feeling anything, for being the kind of person that can just kill easily and not be bothered by anybody, to sort of like become this kind of god who doesn't care about anything. You're invincible. But that god that they're toying with is a psychopathic god, you know, is a complete fucking sociopath. And I realize that we as a society, we, we sort of yearn for for, I don't want to be hurt anymore. I don't want to feel that pain anymore i want to be able to do whatever i whatever i want to do and not feel insecurity or shame or anything and so what people may not realize is what you're doing is you're fantasizing about being a psychopath and so it's so built into society that i believe that there are some political leaders that are complete psychopaths and but but we look at them and they're so confident they don't get rattled by anything we're like oh my god i want to be like that you have to stop and go like do i really want to be like that because that person has gone through deep levels of dissociation or or had, you know they were born with a certain you know kind of um pathology but we weirdly enough admire it we talk about compassion we talk about you know empathy we talk about caring for each other but then we also like enjoy watching characters in movies that feel nothing you know you know those movies where there's two kinds of movies that are very violent the one just celebrates the violence and celebrates how shut off the person is and the other one is somebody who's in a situation who's struggling with the things they're doing you know you, you know that movie like the, the spy who gets involved with either the cia or the nsa and they start doing things they realize they don't feel good about it and they're struggling with their choices you know that at least you know has a person that has a moral struggle but I'm talking about movies and TV shows where they kill with absolute impunity and it's no big deal. They, they kill somebody and then they eat a sandwich, maybe even while the body's still there. And I'm talking about these really dis disturbing things because we need to understand that the entertainment industry is promoting 
these fantasies about psychopathy and it's become so normal. It's become so normalized in society. And I wonder if maybe that's part of the reason we're not seeing some of the red flags because we see these people and they seem so confident and sure of themselves. And we think, oh, that's good. I want to be like that. And I promise you, you do not want to be like that. There are soldiers that have done terrible things. They come back from wars and those that have empathy and morality have deep moral injuries. Um, it's better to be that way than to be somebody that goes off to war and like somebody in my family, I have a story that I told a long time ago, you know, where, you know, I, I, I was required to go to a war in Africa when I was very young and I refused uh, and I was on, run, on the run from the military police. But, but one of my cousins uh, invited one of his, his buddies, you know, um, over one weekend. And, and the stories they told about what they did and went through were just horrifying. And, and they told a story about this one guy who collected the ears of every soldier that he killed. So he would, you know, kill somebody and then go cut their ear off and, you know, put it in a box. That's some pretty, that's some pretty fucked up shit. And we have to be really careful what we're celebrating and what we're fantasizing about because, the package of, of the hero who, who feels nothing and doesn't care and, and kills with impunity, that part of that package is psychopathy and zero empathy. So it's really important to like, understand what entertainment is doing. Somebody reached out as well and said to me, um, hey, so you know, Daniela was locked in a room. Was there anybody else that was locked in a room? And uh, yeah, there was. Um, not for as long. I found out later there was an there was an uh, an editor who who worked in what before it had a you know film department who um, refused to have Ranieri's baby, and so this editor was now in breach, and the editor was then put in a room I think it was locked, and told that they couldn't come out until they finished some work they were supposed to do because they had breached, so apparently. Um, the Daniela story is not the only one, and there may be more stories like that that I may not be aware of, but certainly I do think that Daniela's was the worst because that was the longest. Two years was the longest. This other person, I don't know how long they were locked up. I think it was uh, a matter of days as opposed to um, years. These questions I get um, about how you were drawn in, there was somebody that commented that I loved. They said... Um, they don't go for losers. You know, cult leaders, uh, abusers are not going for losers. They're going for people that can provide them fuel of some kind, um, some kind of resource. So I thought that was interesting. And I think that's true as well. There was somebody, I think on Instagram, uh, Nottingham Hawkins, no, Nottingham Watkins, I beg your pardon who commented um, and said, my psych professor used to say there are two types of people who will never be induced into a cult. Number one, someone who is unattractive, lazy, poor, and unintelligent because the cult can't use them. And two, someone who is narcissistic, sociopathic, and um, unempathetic because they're running it. I thought that was very, very funny. Very funny. I also, I mean, I do actually think that there are um, you know, psychopaths and sociopaths and con artists who can spot it very, very well because they do think like that, they can see another con. So I do think that people that have the pathology are much better at spotting these cons than people who are purely empathetic. 
um, they do have an advantage in that way. So, you know, speaking of, of comments that really are awesome, um, I think it's Genelope 8, Genelope, I don't know, Penelope maybe, commented, um, listening to the debriefing now, and I had a thought regarding planking. You asked why someone would take on someone else's penance. There are two reasons. Number one, because it binds the group to one another, so they each feel responsible not only for yourselves, but also for the welfare of others in an enmeshed way. And two, because when you care deeply about others, seeing them being wounded or hurt is a worse punishment for you than doing the penance. Stephen King once wrote in a story that you can tell someone that you're going to hurt them and they might be scared. But if you tell them you're going to hurt someone they love, you can now get them to do anything to avoid that pain, guilt, and responsibility. Um, I think that's so accurate. So accurate. And I think, you know, Ranieri wasn't really capable of, 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 of warmth. And so what he did was he worked on structuring community where everybody would get bonded to each other in very, very close ways. And then uh, we were told that the community wasn't effective him. It came from him. But all he did was basically say, like, we're going to make a community and these are the things you're going to do and you're going to take care of each other and you're going to love each other and you can do all these things. So you became very bonded. And then you were told that all comes from him, which sounds like religion, you know, like this amazing life you have is all from the floaty person in the sky. That's why you have it. Um, but I think that's very smart what um, Genelope 8 or Penelope 8 said. Super smart. Rebecca Zach commented, great pick. Uh, oh, by my picture. Question. In Nancy's house, she says she has what looks like an old woman's sculpture hanging on the wall behind her. Any intel? I've never seen anything like it. I do remember the statue very well. I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, it was upstairs. It might have been either in her office, perhaps it was in a bedroom. I know her bedroom door was like, you know, uh, connected to the office. And I, I do remember seeing it up there somewhere. I think it was a gift from somebody, and I don't remember who. It may have been a gift from her daughters. I'm not certain. Um, I, I remember thinking it was fucking creepy, like there's no way I could hang around with a thing like that hanging on the wall, but that's just me. Lisa from igotout.org um, had an amazing comment. You guys should check out I Got Out, um, and also the hashtag I Got Out, very important. She wrote and said, episode five and Daniela's story answers the question every cult survivor hates to hear, but why didn't you just leave? People who don't understand might think the door wasn't locked. No one made her stay. The answer is very clearly laid out in Alexandra Stein's book, Terror, Love, and Brainwashing. It's an amazing book, by the way, in what she calls disorganized attachment, where the source of trauma is also the source of relief and comfort from that trauma. Really looking forward to hearing how you bring both Stein and Shaw's work into your debrief. Um, not going to do that as much, but, it, but, but their work is in Empathy Not Included. It is coming up in that. Lisa Brahm said, I hope you find deep healing from the trauma of reliving this nightmare. Lisa, I'm still, I, I think in, in the full sum of it is it is providing, I am healing. Um, I don't feel like I've gone backwards. Um, I think episode one of this season, uh, I thought, am I having a complete fucking relapse? But 
I think it was just that what was happening is it was digging up unresolved stuff or, or stuff that I hadn't looked at yet. Um, and I've told you guys before, like I've resolved a lot of stuff about Ranieri, but I have not resolved uh, a lot of stuff about the people that I was relating to that I was very close to. Um, I'm still struggling with some of those things. But, you know, as I said, thank God I have the ocean. Thank God I have, you know, my amazing wife, Bonnie, um, and friends that I can always turn to and say, I feel really fucked up. You know, can we talk this kind of thing through? So that's been super helpful. Tenaciously Loyal wrote, I thought I'd heard most things about this cult, but I'd never heard of any of this before. She's talking about, um, I assume it was a she. Actually, maybe it's not a she. I apologize if it's not a she. Um, he, they, <laughs> they are talking about episode five, and Danielle in the room. As I was watching and heard Daniela say two years, I literally said out loud, oh my God, all I could think of is why does he still have loyalists? Whenever I watch, I always put myself in your guy's shoes. And when I heard that, I thought of the whistleblowers and their uncovering of all the depravity and how crushing that must have been. Yes. I do appreciate the time you take to reopen and revisit the wounds because I do think this case is so important to understand consent and mind control. Yeah, and that's honestly one of the reasons I do think it's important to talk about it is I think these, I think consent, I think that, you know, brainwashing, mind control, whatever you want to call it, these are very, very important discussions to have. I think we're in a society where so much coercion happens and there's so much justification for coercion that people think, okay, well, I guess we just what we have to do. And there's real problems um, that are happening in the world. And I think, you know, uh, Nixium is is a sort of a, a, a microcosm of and and it's equivalent to many other cults, but it's also a microcosm of much bigger world events that are going on right now. Um, there are huge, huge issues at play on a on a local level and on a national level, perhaps even a global level, that need to be looked at. So I'm hoping that people can start to look at the templates of what's going on and start to apply it to other things. And that's that's sort of my obsession now. You know, my obsession is not to stay in the Nixian world forever. My obsession is to see the connections between this kind of coercion, you know, other cults and other things happening in the world that people may not realize are cults or displaying cultic behavior. Because um, there's a lot of cultic behavior going on right now. I said cultic and culty. I mean both things, actually. But I do like culty. You guys should all go listen to a little bit culty with uh, Sarah Nippy. Good stuff there. User YU something or other said, Mark, just curious, do you believe there is a God or a force for good? After your experience in Nixium, how do you explain to yourself why this happened to you or to anyone on earth? Do you still believe in altruism? Although I, never, I was never involved in a cult, my belief has been constantly shattered by my life experience all these years. It's hard. I, I feel you. Um, such a complex question. Look, it was very shattered. My belief in people, my belief in goodness was very, very shattered for quite some time. 2017, 2018, 2019, shattered. And some of, and actually, no, a good amount of 2020 as well. 2021, it turned around. Um, I don't believe in the kind of God that's floating in the sky, the bearded dude, the bearded white guy. I think that's bullshit. Um, I do believe in some very profound, deep um, something that that is at the basis of all reality 
that I think we're all connected to. Um, but I don't have words for it. And I certainly wouldn't use the word God because I think the word God has been uh, abused a great deal. So I wouldn't use that. Do I think um, that this force is a force for goodness? In my experience, yes, but I'm not sure. You know, I think sometimes about the Star Wars and the force, you know, the force can be used negatively and positively. And I'm starting to think, well, I think it can be used negatively as well. It's like, I don't know. Um, but honestly, I prefer being in the state of I don't know right now than being so fucking sure of myself as I have been for decades about a bunch of shit that turned out to be bullshit. So, you know, and, and again, the question of why do you know, bad things happen on earth, I, I, don't think that, I don't think there's a guy that's like orchestrating everything. I, I just don't. Um, is there some kind of, you know, unseen plan? Yeah, maybe. I mean, certainly in my life, I've started to get an inkling of, I think there is some kind of, some kind of plan of some kind, but it's not, I don't think it's a human being making that plan. And I don't think that it is making value judgments about good and bad experiences. But again, like, I don't know. I have in moments of very deep meditation, I have extremely profound experiences that as I start to come out to, to full normal consciousness, I have startling clarity, but um, some of it starts to fade and I don't have the words for it. I have an experience of something very profound, very deep, and, and, and a feeling of being connected to all things, um, but it's certainly not how I live my life at the moment. Um, I kind of have to be still to feel that. Um, so yeah, I'm sorry. I don't think I answered that question very well. I'm still in process, I guess. Um, I think like all of us are, I guess. You know, I, I am going to talk a lot more about these, these kinds of things. Um, I am going to, in, in, other, in other episodes of, of, you know, what the fuck is on my mind, get into spirituality, get into religion um, a lot. Um, I think for now I'm just going to hold off. And just basically say, I don't, I don't believe in the current narrative that's being pushed about you know, what God is. I think that's utter bullshit. And I think it's, um, it enables a, a lot of people who are doing some very bad shit. Sea of Solace, what a beautiful name. That was amazing, Mark. Great episode. I have so many questions that are very niche. Oh. Uh, why did Keith change his looks and cut his hair at some point? That's a good question. I mean, listen, he had, when I came in, he had that long fucking Jesus hair, greasy and disgusting. I thought it was creepy. I I think as I started shooting him, I would say to him, like, you seriously need to cut your hair. You, you look like Rasputin. I think eventually um, I kept on pushing on the, on the hair, saying he looks awful. And then one day suddenly, and you guys saw that in season one, he decides to, change, to cut his hair. And I think in the end it was, you know, Mariana was his fashion consultant. And then suddenly he cuts his hair. And then he makes me go back and reshoot everything with, with, with a short hair. Now, in some ways I'm really sorry he cut his hair because he looked a little bit more decent. The, the Rasputin look was more accurate. Um, but I think in the end he might have come to the recognition that the Rasputin look wasn't working in the world. I think he was just very attached to the Rasputin look. And then they sort of dressing him up in some really weird, like skinny jeans. I mean, I, it was, it was just fucking weird. But again, I wasn't the one, you know, making all those decisions. But I did see a lot of, you know, discussions later on happening because um, what was what was going on inside Nixium is is 
um, image control started to happen a lot more. Um, you know, sort of upgrading the look of everything, upgrading the website, everything was, was getting improved. And that, that's a topic for another time. But um, I think it was in the end, maybe it was Mariana and Pam that eventually said, you know, you need to cut your hair. Some strange reason he listened to them. Uh, the other question was, I heard you mentioned once that all the names Keith gave to the programs were an inside joke to himself. Um, did I say that? I don't think all of them were. Um, why was it called Nixium? To this fucking day, I don't know. Um, you know who would know, though? Uh, Barbara Boucher would know. So if you look, look her up uh, on the internet and find her name and, and the word Nixium, you might find that she said something about that. I did ask questions about that. I thought at once it was Roman numerals, you know, um, for numbers. Um, I never got a clear answer. Jeunesse, again, I don't know. I thought it was je ne sais quoi. I thought that's the reason. Um, I, heard, I was told that the word jeunesse didn't have a specific meaning. And so because jeunesse was designed to be something so unique that it couldn't be described, certainly not by men. So I don't have that information. There were other, you know, there are other names that, that all had, you know, different meanings, but that's, you know, it's, it's a long story. This is so cool. Kaya North says, the Pavlovian thing is so interesting. Narcissists often like to put little things out there that tell on themselves because they enjoy duping people even more when it's kind of obvious that they're doing it. So I feel like the Pavlovian thing on some level is saying, okay, look, I'm conditioning you. And nobody would realize the link there. It's a game. And as long as nobody gets the link, the narcissist can revel in the fact that he's basically telling on himself and people still revere him and don't understand they're being manipulated. Uh, Kai North, that is absolutely true. Um, Ranieri played the long game when it came to jokes and, and practical jokes. He loved practical jokes. He loved knowing that he was doing something and people didn't know what he was doing. And... If you remember from uh, season one, I think it is, where I talk about that uh, transcript that I did of a, of a, of a story he pitched me, uh, you know, about the, the guy who was trying to realize there was a psychopath in the organization, and it turns out the mentor is the psychopath. There was a lot of things like that that he, he would drop in. Also, the, his choice of, of um, you know, sort of plays and movies, like the, the, the play Sweeney Todd, uh, that play was done twice. Um, the different kinds of movies that he enjoyed watching and enjoyed showing us scenes many of them were were movies about you know sociopaths and psychopaths so i do believe this was a sort of in plain sight type of issue um i think he enjoyed that there was something he knew that nobody else knew and with some people i think i found out later he did actually admit that he was doing some bad shit um and 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 enjoying it and i think because he believed that that other person was a sociopath. He felt he could share those things. Um, yeah, it's dark shit. It's dark shit. Sunny on the inside wrote, I think sunk cost fallacy is a big factor when you're in any kind of controlling, emotionally draining dynamic. Not seeing things for what they truly are is necessary at some point because to fully realize is dangerous and will require a complete upheaval of your life. And acknowledging the time you spent trying to meet controlling expectations is lost forever. Man, that is so true. That, that is very much the case. And I do think that's the case for people that are still holding on. Um, some of it, for some of them, I think, is they're so deep in. You know, the sunk cost fallacy, for those that don't know, is basically, you know, that the idea that you've put so much in already 
that, that backing out seems like a bad thing to do. So you just keep on investing. You just keep on investing. And the idea that that's better than pulling out, because obviously pulling out is better. Um, I do think that people's psyches would shatter if they had to uh, pull away. And so maybe maybe it's better for them. I, I just think that what they're supporting is still very problematic. But yeah. And again, you know, in my letter to the inside, I did write, you know, that, that one day you'll come to this horror as well. And I, and I didn't realize that maybe some people never will. I mean, I assumed everybody would. I was wrong. The realization that you have been going in the opposite direction of what you thought you were going, that, that what you thought was good is actually bad, that whole turning upside down of your world and your psyche and your worldview is, is an absolutely shattering experience. And one that I don't envy anybody having been through it myself because it's it does staggering things to your psyche you feel literally like you're going insane and you have no solid ground to stand on at all um, because everything you thought was true was a lie and what happens is in that moment on a very very deep visceral level the foundation that you thought was extremely solid is like quicksand and it's moving and it's doing all kinds of bizarre things. You know, I once had a, had a dream that really illustrates what, what it's like. And this was actually when I was still in the cult. Maybe I should have listened to the dream. Um, I had this dream. Actually, no, this was before I was in the cult, before. When I was um, living in Hollywood as a cinematographer and I was, I was shooting movies, I had a dream one day that I, I arrived on set <clears throat> and it was a strange set because... It was an alien landscape, and there were, I think, three suns in the sky. It wasn't Tatooine, by the way. There were three suns in the sky, um, and I couldn't recognize any of the star constellations. And I pulled out my light meter to, to sort of think, okay, well, so let me just measure, I guess, how do I measure each sun separately? Should I measure them together? And I looked at my light meter, and it was alien, and none of it made sense. And I, and I thought to myself, what the fuck am I going to do? Like, I'm, I, we have to start shooting right now. And... It was all in some gibberish alien language. And I felt so deeply unsettled. And I woke up like, you know, gasping and freaking out. And I think it was probably, I was about to start, you know, shooting a big movie. That's probably why that dream happened. But that moment of not understanding what any of the stuff on the light meter said and the feeling of like, you know, there's, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on the line, blah, blah, blah. It was terrifying. Now, you know, multiply that, that experience by, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands, your entire version of reality gets uprooted. And your entire version of yourself, because you, you, you know, you see, you've seen yourself as a certain kind of person, you know, who believes in certain things. And, and then you realize all the things you believed in, well, all the things you believed in, you thought you were doing, or you were part of, and then you realize that's not true. And you, you, you have nothing to hold on to. You can't hold on to yourself. You can't hold on to your friends, certainly, who are loyal. And you can't hold on to the leader in any way because you realize that's the opposite of what I want. But you've been so conditioned for so long that you don't have your original, um, authentic personality available in that moment. And so you're fucking adrift, you know, in a fucking desert, um, but the desert makes no sense because it's not made of sand and like the feels like the sands on the, on the, on the roof and the skies on the floor. It's, it's a very fucked up experience. So I can, I do see how people's psyche would not want to go there and not even want to ask the simple, simple little questions that need to be asked in order to wake up. I completely understand that. So yeah, that's, it's very accurate. <clears throat> 
Stephen Schutt uh, wrote, amazing how Keith brainwashed the woman he was sleeping with to not be jealous of each other. Evil genius. Yeah, not entirely true. They were actually jealous of each other um, constantly. Um, what, I, what I learned later, because I, I didn't know they were all sleeping with him. Uh, I saw all this whispering going on all the time. And something weird was going on. 2017, I finally realized, oh, they're all, they're all sleeping with him. But they were jealous, I found out. It's just that they were constantly EM'd on their jealousy as though their jealousy was an attachment. Not only was an attachment that it was bad for them, but it was very bad for him because it was bad for his energy, which, as I've said before, super convenient for this little, um, you know, schoolboy that just wanted to fuck. Shannon Miller said, I'd love to know if there are other predators in Nexium, or do you consider all, them all survivors? Nancy Allison. Um, I'm going to answer this this way. Yes, there were other predators. Um, I think a lot of us didn't realize what we were looking at, but yes, there were. There were. A lot of stuff makes sense once you get out of that you know, coercive controlling environment. You finally have the, the space to start thinking without thinking that the, the thought you're having is some kind of a breach. You're, you're allowed to think. Um, and, and, you know, something else that's important, and, and I think people that have been in cults know this, or even people that have been in abusive relationships, you dare not think certain things. And so once you get away from the person, the echoes of their control and their abuse and their violence is still there. So you're afraid to think certain things and you have to retrain yourself that it's okay to have thoughts, that it's okay to question, you know, and I, and I advise people anytime you feel whether you're in a relationship, you know, or a workplace or, or a fucking country where you can't just think something freely in your mind, you're worried about thinking it, you're in a very bad situation and you need to figure out how to get the fuck out because that is very, very bad. Uh, Murphy Monica said to me, thank, thank you, Murphy Monica. She said, Susan Dones was the one who started the term Wolfpack. You're absolutely right. Thank you for saying that. Um, Susan Dones was, and, and for those of you, you know, check her out in social media. She is saying a lot of amazing stuff. Um, we've become incredibly close and she's been an amazing supporter. She was just, you know, there was a former wave of whistleblowers. Um, there were nine of them before us that they, they were not successful and they were pretty much destroyed. Um, you know, Barbara Boucher, Susan Dones were part of a group of nine, that tried everything to try to take the cult down and were not successful. So we all have a great deal in common. And they, they came before us. You know, they, they set the stage for us in many ways. And we were able to, to use a lot of what they'd already developed many years earlier. And they had very important information. And they did amazing stuff. They just, Nixon was just too damn powerful at that point. Um, and by the time we did this, this move, I think there was enough of us uh, with enough um, power influence to be able to get it done, but we do we have to thank them for what they did, and they were they were fucking destroyed. Jamie Cosimore said, "Is it difficult to separate the beginning where a group of altruistic people were deeply bonded in a united purpose to what it eventually became? Have you been able to, to experience the good part of the community through the work you're doing now?" It must be so difficult to ever trust a group again. Thank you for your transparency. It's such a good question. I don't trust groups at all. Um, 
the only groups I'm interested in being a part of now are, are on a film set. You know, the film team I work with, that's the only group I'm interested in. I, I'm, you know, I struggle because I, I recognize that there were good moments and there were good times, but I also recognize they didn't come from him. They came from the natural, authentic people that we were. He provided a structure that had we all been psychopathic, we never could have felt any of those things, but we weren't. We were empathic, so we felt profound things, which leads me to believe it had more to do with our ability than his ability. Um, but I do miss, I miss certain things. I, I miss the, the closeness and the emotional intimacy that I had with certain people. Um, also some male friends, you know, people that will not talk to me anymore. Uh, I miss that. But I don't confuse that with him anymore. And I don't confuse that with the bad intent anymore. Um, but I do miss the times. And, and I will tell you, I feel weird about it sometimes. I feel weird that I miss. And maybe those of you who have been in cults, you know, can relate to this. Maybe you can tell me if this is true. I do miss certain aspects. And then I have this feeling of like, is that weird? Is it weird that I miss that, that good part of something? You know, where, where, where you know, they poured their heart out. I poured my heart out. We saw each other as human beings, whatever that was. I, I miss that. I mean, I, I miss this. There's one evening, I think this was in 2014. Um, there was somebody that was working uh, with me and it was her birthday and drinking was not allowed. And, and, and Bonnie and myself, a bunch of people decided, let's, let's go do something fun. So we went to this local like brandy orchard place and we got like a whole bottle of this little different kinds of apple brandies and peach brandies and pear brandies and whatever and we came back to our place uh in in clifton park and everybody got fucking smashed and we had the best time ever i mean and i was taking photographs of it i still have the photographs they're amazing photographs the amount of shit that we got for that you know using external you know, things to, to feel joyful and what a bad example I was setting for everybody by, you know, getting everybody drunk. I mean, I got so much shit for it. Honestly, it was one of the fucking highlights of, you know, my time in the cult and for a lot of people there as well. We felt such immense freedom and we were having so much fun and there was so much goodness that was involved in that. Um, I miss moments like that, you know, I really, really do. It was a sort of a moment of, I guess, complete defiance because I was well aware, you know, that there were rules and regulations. I was like, ah, fuck it. No, fuck it. These people need a good time. We all need a good time. We're going to go. And we didn't get you know, like motherlessly drunk. You know, we just had little, little bottles of, you know, different kinds of brandies. We're just very happy. Um, I miss those moments. You know, I really do. Paul Motherall, Motherall, Motherall wrote, Mark, when you were talking of advertising and psyops, did Nixium ever toy with the idea of an app to surveil people? Seems something right down their alley. Yes, Paul, they did. There was a, I don't even remember the name of it anymore. There was some kind of a, a communication system that Ranieri was devising, which never seemed to go anywhere. And he was working with some of the people in, in the IT department and they'd spent like over a million on this system and it, it just didn't seem to work. But what they did in, in, in Knoxwoods and, and the developments that we were living in is they said to us, hey, we want to test the system out. Can we install something in your house? I said, sure. Yeah, okay. So they installed this weird thing and they connected it to the router, the Wi-Fi router in, 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 in the house. 
And I was like, all right, well, that's just part of this. You know, they were trying to do a mesh network. For those of you that know about these things, they were trying to do a mesh network to create their own um, sort of cell phone system, their own communication system that was was independent of you know SMS, you know Telegram, WhatsApp, that kind of thing. And and I think they they tried to figure out a way, even though they were plugged into the internet to do some kind of a firewall so that they were separate, but it was this mesh network they were designing that would cover the entire neighborhood. Then later, I came home, I was away a lot, you know, shooting or doing whatever, and I came home one day and there was a, a video camera outside the garage uh, pointing at the street. And I remember saying to the IT person, oh, what's the camera doing? They said, oh, it's just part of the network. We want to, you know, see when people are close to the network, if they're near the house, that kind of thing. As with many of these things, having complete trust in the IT person, uh, who is a dear friend of mine. I said, oh, okay, that sounds cool. Later in 2017, when I start to wake up, I think to myself, I think that was a surveillance system. Because then I thought back to the thing that was in the garage. It wasn't, I think it was just a, a, a bogus bullshit piece of, you know, something. I think that they were plugged into our internet so that they could potentially, you know, look at our, all our emails and, and watch us and then also video cameras to be able to see what we were doing. It's not out of the question that Ranieri was so obsessive about control that he wanted access to all that information. And given his great love of getting secrets from people, maybe that was part of it as well. I have no proof of this. Certainly, I um, gave the FBI as much information as I possibly could about all these things. Um, that didn't show up, you know, in court. So either it wasn't enough, it wasn't important enough, or there wasn't enough evidence. But the basic answer, you know, did they have a, a toy that was native an app to surveil people? Absolutely. I absolutely believe not only was it being toyed with, but there was at least a million dollars that had been plowed into it already. And I think it was, uh, I think they were trying to raise $2 million to do it. So it was supposedly a pretty sophisticated thing. But like all of Ranieri's ventures, they never amounted to anything. He just kept on, and maybe this was just his way of getting money. He just said, I'm going to do this thing. People put a lot of money into that thing, and then the thing never went anywhere. And then he always had some excuse about, you know, the government's trying to stop him or, you know, dark forces or blah, 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 blah. You know, they're cult leaders, man. It's always some dark force. Apparently, they're, they're, they're all powerful and you create your own reality, except when things go wrong, you're not creating your own reality. Then it's the dark forces that are out to get you. I want you guys to know I'm really appreciative of all the amazing you know, questions that I get and comments you know, on social media. I really, really do appreciate it. It's, it's very meaningful. I've said that before and I'll say it again. I cannot get to all the questions, though, just, you know, and I can't get to all the comments. I try to as much as I can, but like, you know, I've also got like, two projects that I'm shooting at the moment and, you know, my life and stuff. So, um, but listen, it's, it's, it's been overwhelming the amount of support. It's incredible. And seeing how the vow and also this podcast is helping people has been extremely gratifying. And, and, and just know as this podcast, you know, grows, I will be talking about, as I said, a lot more than Nixium. Um, but it's, it's always going to be in relation to, you know, these kinds of, of things because that's what I'm obsessed with, you know, is is the nature of, um, you know, coercion uh, in society in general. And then later at some point, I think, um, I will start to address, you know, spirituality, as I've said, you know, my understanding of it now, you know, because, 
you know, a lot of people say to me, well, you know, when are you going to talk about, you know, when are you going to talk about what the bleep? And I will at some point. Um, other people say to me, like, when are you going to address the other cults you were in? And, and I keep thinking to myself, well, if you want to pay my legal fees, fucking, you know, send me a couple of million and I'll address it. I have been through one big battle. I'm not sure how many more battles like that I want to go through. For those of you that can read between the lines, you know exactly what I'm saying. All right. It's time to get stuck into the episode. This episode, I, uh, where do I begin? This episode just fucking wrenched my fucking heart, just split my heart open. Um, it did some, it did some intense shit to me. So there are so many complex feelings that I have about this episode. You know those feelings where you feel one thing and another thing and another thing at the same time and they're all contradictory to each other? That's a bit what, what it was like for me watching this um, episode. And I'm sure some of the audience may have felt that as well. You know, just a quick aside, I think at some point I think I want to do an episode about film editing, uh, about how it actually works. Um, because I think that people get very caught up in some stuff and they may not understand what editing actually does. I think I'm going to do an episode on that. Uh, you know, there's this expression, the map is not the territory. Um, the map being like, you know, a, a map of, you know, a country. That map of a country, that piece of paper is not actually the actual land, is not actually the actual geography, is not the actual place. And I do think it's important that people understand you're not, you're, you're not seeing all of reality. You're not seeing all of reality. You're not seeing all of what happened. You know, you're not seeing 30 years of stuff. You know, you'd have to be in some kind of simulation that you live through 30 years of stuff from every single person's perspective to say, oh, now, I've, now I understand what, what happened. You're seeing a slice of, of life, a few things more. There's a lot more that happened that's, that's not in the vow. Um, it's, it's astonishing, actually. There's, there's so much that's not in the vow. But understand, you know, there, there's only so much that you can do in a, in a space of time. And, and some stories were, you know, I think left out. You know, maybe the network didn't find them interesting. Um, there's certainly stories that I think are fascinating and important that, that didn't make it in. But that's just the way it is. Um, all right. Having said that, the module where Nancy is speaking at the very beginning, uh, which, I, which I directed, it reminded me that there were so many things in the education that I didn't actually get, that I didn't actually understand, and I thought it was a limitation of my own. Like, things just didn't make logical sense to me, um, but I thought it was a case of me not being logical enough or not having the intelligence to understand it. I always thought I was like missing something or I was too disintegrated. Um, I mean, I could conceptually kind of grok to some degree what was being said. Uh, once I woke up, though, it was so different because I looked back at uh, a lot of the curriculum. I, I reread a lot of stuff and I was like, yeah, this shit doesn't make sense or this shit's just plain illogical or, or whatever it is. There's all these leaps that they're, they're, they're making in their thinking. Um, so it was kind of a relief to realize that maybe I wasn't that stupid after all. It's just that like the shit didn't make sense. One other thing 
I don't know if people realize necessarily that the names of each episode of The Vow are actually taken from modules. You know, like Crime and Punishment was an actual module. You know, the Blame and Responsibility was an actual module. Honesty and Disclosure was an actual module. The Fall, the Mission, all these kinds of things were, were the names of modules. Like, that's kind of smart. The text messages between, um, I'm just going to call them Fuckface, and Camilla, uh, we did not know about those text messages until the government did their filings. When the government started doing their filings, some of those text messages started appearing, and it really blew, blew us away. And then, of course, a lot more stuff came out in court. And that was the first time uh, a lot of us whistleblowers had heard that stuff, and it was absolutely shocking. And I think, honestly, the fuck toy thing, for instance, that actually is what made a lot of people decide, all right, that's it. This shit's just too fucked up. Um, so a lot of people were surprised, I think. That got a lot of people Clearly not the people that are still loyal, but certainly us and the people that had left. Or I think even the people that were on the fence, I should say. The people that were on the fence were like, what the fuck is this? When Ranieri and Camilla are text messaging and he says something like, in this specific case, you should want to give everything. You know, and he's trying to make himself into this god. And honestly, if I could give that god a slap right there, I would have fucking slapped him. That statement right there shows you the entire problem. Ranieri knows that she has a view of him in her mind that he's actually built. And, and it's sort of a godlike view. And that's where the extreme abuses of power occur. Because he installed himself as a religious figure in her mind. And imagine if you have the ability to do that, to install in somebody's mind yourself as some kind of deity or religious figure, imagine the bad shit you can do. And clearly he did, and he did imagine it, and he did do it. The whole penis discussion about the length of Robbie's penis, you know, blah, blah, blah. When I first heard that, I was like, you know, are you fucking serious? That's who we've been following? A fucking child? Um, you know, and when he says to her, you know, uh, 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 when she says, how do you know? And he says, well, guys tell each other. No, they fucking don't tell each other shit. They barely have a fucking meaningful conversation with each other. That's fucking bullshit. He's just trying to make her think that, that he's somehow smarter and that guys have this, you know, secret language. They, they do not have a secret fucking language. Um, guys actually know less about each other than women know about each other. Far less. When Emily Saul asks, you know, why, why are we looking at these childish text messages? Um, in my opinion, it was the government's way of unmasking Ranieri, you know, of showing who he really is under all these sort of ethical mumbo jumbo. And it did have an effect because, you know, a great many people read the transcripts, which I deliberately shared with people. Um, and they were shocked. And, and again, I think a lot of these text messages are what actually woke people up. Moira Penza is extremely accurate when she talks about DOS being the thing that uh, allows him to finally control all the women. Because he had been losing control of people, people had been leaving, and he needed a way to guarantee that he would never be abandoned. And 
I know that the people that are still loyal think that the structure he created was somehow this noble thing, but it really wasn't. It was a cage to help him with his own insecurity, stuff that he had never resolved and maybe isn't capable of resolving. I'm not sure what's actually going on in his psyche. But clearly, you know, as a, as a, as a 50-something, 60-whatever guy, I mean, he hasn't resolved this shit in all that time. So chances are it's never getting resolved. And so they are still his, you know, his supply. They are still, they're not abandoning him. And so he still feels, I guess, on a, on a, on a psychological level, maybe coddled because he still has support. We're dealing with a very, very needy man. And this is the thing they don't understand. Um, these kinds of leaders are very, very needy. They act as though they don't need anybody, but it's not true. They're super fucking needy. And once you figure that out, it really frees you when you realize, oh, motherfucker's just needy and doesn't know how to like just be a human being. So he's forcing people and coercing people to do shit to deal with his neediness. The, 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 you know, I just keep on going back to these text messages. They're, they're so important because the, the exchanges between Camilla and Fuckface, you can clearly see this man is, is deranged and has an obsessive and violent need for control and it's so contrary to what everybody believed about him. That's why these messages were so important. It was such a big shock when these messages started coming out in 2018 in the government filings because it was, it was so contrary to what people believed. And for me, although I had begun to take him off the pedestal and realized who he was, it just further sort of concretized my understanding that what I had been following was... was uh, uh, you know, a complete fucking mask, that underneath it, this was the truth. And, and this is what people have to understand. Underneath these abusers, there is a truth that maybe you can't see because maybe their pathology and their the way they've trained themselves, they've trained themselves to hide these things so well. And I allude again to politics because this is, I believe, what politicians do. How many times have you heard about some leader or some politician who everybody thinks is like, you know, the the next, you know, next thing to God, and you find out that he's diddling God knows who, underage whatever, and that's the truth. You know, I, I refer you again to every single scandal about a leader, and many of these scandals haven't come out, but hopefully people will start to see under the mask more and more um, in all kinds of contexts. Whenever you see the sort of the inner circle images that that um, that they create, the graphics they created, and I'm looking at the one where where Rhaenyra is surrounded by all these these women, um, you know, the circle of women it has Rhaenyra in the middle, you know, Camilla, Lauren, Nikki, Loretta, uh, Rosa, Laura, Monica, Allison, Daniela, and understand, I knew all of these these people very very well. Um, I was astonished again that the Mexicans just walked away like nothing happened. Uh, I just, it just has always blown my mind. There is so much I could say about each one of those people. Um, yeah, I'll just leave it there. There's so much I could say. When Ranieri is, is in the black hoodie, the Nike hoodie, and he's saying that, you know, abuse is a made-up construct. And, he's, you know, this is in Nancy Salzman's house. I wasn't present for that conversation. I have no idea what it was for. Um, but again, you know, 
making abuse a, a made-up human construct is so convenient for the abuser. And look, everything's a made-up human construct. You know, uh, without humans, you know, there's just there's just whatever there is, this, this, the reality there is. So yes, everything is a made-up human construct. But that that doesn't mean that everything's up for grabs because morality is also a human construct. It's baked into our neurobiology, you know? So he's trying to sort of make everything equal. It's not fucking equal. That's not how we behave. That's how he behaves. When Ranieri is talking about some little children being, you know, perfectly happy about the acts that were done to them, um, until they were told it was bad, and then suddenly they think it's bad. I, c I can hear in my mind, you know, 10 million psychologists screaming, uh, you know, about what a fuck knuckle he is. And I think it's important to know that there are academics, you know, that have written books that are out in the world right now that, that believe things like this. Um, not only about sexual abuse, but like there's a, a very dehumanizing strain of thinking that I'm seeing in the world. And this cold clinical view of the world is being revered as intelligent. And I think, I, I think it's good to think about that as well, that that attitude is, is very prevalent in, 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 in powerful places and in some scary individuals. I just started laughing when Nancy says it may be society that's abusing them. When these people find out, when these young people find out, you know, they were abused when they were young and years later they find out that was abuse. Um, the suggestion that society is actually the one abusing them because now society is the one that's causing trauma for something that wasn't traumatic. I just, I just started laughing because it's, it's and, and understand my laughter is a maniacal, insane kind of laughter the insanity of what is being suggested and this kind of constant line bending. And I may have mentioned this before, you know, Ranieri talked about, you know, how you can't get a person from, you know, A to Z. You have to take them in stages in stages and stages and you have to line bend their beliefs little by little by little by little. So again, you know, DOS took a long time to, to get to what it was and the education, this was all baked into the education and little by little by little, he was shifting everybody's thinking. When Nancy says that there's a very few pieces of the curriculum that were put in there to promote Keith's beliefs, um, that is not true. I believe that the entire curriculum was a funnel towards his depravity and towards his need for control and which was a result of his pathology, it was designed to feed his pathology. And in that moment, that's not what she's seeing. And, you know, I've, I've, I've written, you know, I wrote to the judge about this. I wrote to a lot of people. Um, I tried to explain to the FBI um, early on when I was trying to explain what this all was. And they really did get it, you know. In the end, you can clearly see they really, everybody really got it. But the entire structure of the entire education was a funnel that was like quicksand that led to ultimate control, to destabilizing uh, our psyches completely and shattering people. Um, the entire thing was designed to do that. Whether she's aware of it or not, you know, you can see in this moment she's not aware of it. And I understand that that's what she's really struggling with in this episode. Also, something that really fucks me up is that she mentions that, you know, as early as 2005, when Ranieri starts talking about this, 
you know, all this underage sex bullshit and, um, which I, which I didn't hear. And it, it messes with me because, you know, that's kind of the year 2005. I thought, let me, I'm going to go spend a year in Albany and like, you know, really study this shit and see if I can, you know, get it. And it upsets me because the cover story, I, you know, we were all buying into the cover story. Um, and it fucking enrages me that that was happening under this lie of a noble civilization. And I think that, that, that rage is part of the reason that I was so motivated in 2017 and 2018 to expose everything. I was enraged that my goodwill, everybody's goodwill, was used to hide all this shit. And by the way, I have no remorse for his sentence and where he is and whatever he has to go through until the day he dies. I have zero remorse about that. And I think that by the end of this episode, I think you've seen it already, but I think by the end of this episode, you really see the devastation that this man has fucking, you know, wrought on everybody. Is it reeked or wrought? I think it's wrought, maybe. I could be wrong. Me saying that I have no remorse for him I know that for the people that are loyal to him, it's it's absolutely shocking. And they probably believe this is this is proof that I'm anti-humanitarian. This is proof that I'm Luciferian, that I've taken the fall. I haven't taken the fall. There's just there is a thing called justice, you know? There is a thing called justice. When Nancy talks about the thought experiments, you know, she says that the thought experiments led you to understand what you believe about these concepts that are being presented, but that's incomplete. The thought experiments led you to understand what you think about these concepts and how they're inferior to the understanding that was being presented. And because of the distance between what you think and the right answer, you have a lot of internal work to do to, to, to solve this because basically you're you know, anti-humanitarian or disintegrated or suppressive or whatever it is. And so she's, she's not complete in her understanding of what thought experiments did. Also thought experiments were ways that he was rehearsing, in his own words, kind of control over people. Um, he ran thought experiments that were very, very disturbing and really fucked people up. And I think that it was part of his system of trying to destabilize people. It wasn't just like the thought experiments you would do in a philosophy class. Um, it was designed to show you what a fuck up you were because, you know, you didn't know how to make good choices or you made a bad choice. The source is worth talking about because that was the acting curriculum. Because, and I mentioned this in court, I try to always get this to land in court because the source was designed by Ranieri to be an, a kind of an acting program. It was a program for artists. But what he taught in the source was that in terms of acting, what he did is took an outside-in approach. And what I'd always learned and to this day still believe is an inside-out approach. So for instance, if I'm an actor, um, the way I would do it is I would bring up the emotion um, that I'm required to feel by maybe keying into a memory of something in my life. And I would tap into my own, you know, biophysiology, so to speak. And then my face, my body would then um, transmit the emotion that was coming from deep inside. Ranieri's acting technique was don't do any of that. 
just figure out what is the architecture of your face that you have to modify to show a certain emotion. Like, what does grief look like? What does this look like? What does that look like? And it was a paint-by-numbers kind of acting approach. Now, interesting that he was teaching don't worry about the inside, just um, modify your facade, the audience will buy it. Because that's kind of like, that's like somebody who has no fucking soul, has zero conscience, zero feelings, and they've learned over time to mimic people's emotions to make people believe that they're feeling those emotions. And that's what the entire source was. And I think for some people that were in the source that didn't have a conscience, uh, I think it was great for them. They're like, oh, I just do this, I just do that. But the problem was there were no authentic... Um, performances that came out of that kind of acting modality because it's fucked now i know that you know you know very very skilled malignant narcissists use that that is what they use you know sociopaths might use it definitely psychopaths use it i know they use that they figure out what is the the architecture of my face and body that i have to represent to people to get them to believe that i am feeling this thing or that i care about them that's why people get fooled because most people feel a thing deeply and then show the thing. So it doesn't occur to them that somebody else is showing something that they're not feeling. That's the great puzzle for empathic people. That's the thing people have to realize. Not everybody is feeling those things. Many, many people are just, they're just fucking acting. And I, I mean that, like just, they're just literally displaying this paint-by-numbers expression to have you believe they're feeling that. And I mentioned this in court a number of times because I wanted the jury to understand Ranieri had taught that because there was nothing inside of him. And anything he did in court was just basically display. He was feeling nothing. I think in the end he was feeling a kind of rage because he got very red in his face at a, at a number of points. When Nancy says that Allison believes in tantric sex, um as a path to enlightenment. I thought that was kind of funny. And, well, I found out towards the end that Nancy believed that. She believed that sex was a path to enlightenment. So I find it funny that she said that Allison believed it, which I'm sure maybe she did, but Nancy very much believed that. I found that out towards the end of my time there. The recording of Allison and, and Fuckface, when he teases her about her narcissistic response and he mentions, you know, this would be a great moment. It would make, a, you know, a, a great poster of, of narcissism. And he was constantly telling her she was a narcissist. What, what she and none of us realized is that what we were looking at in him was a kind of vulnerable narcissism. Um, and I believe, by the way, he was hunting for narcissists. I think he was hunting for them, uh, narcissists and psychopaths. Because, you know, I think people may not realize a narcissist can actually be controlled. And I think he loved breaking them. And they can be controlled because if you can figure out what the fuel is that they require, they will be loyal to, to the, the, the source of the fuel. And in this case, Ranieri was giving them fuel. He was putting people in certain positions where they felt this rush of power or attention and they fucking loved it. So he was very, very sneaky in what he did. Another moment that's super fucked up is, you know, when Nicole is describing how Ranieri takes her into this room and ties her down, and then, then another woman, you know, goes down on her, and when it's over, she says, you know, can I leave? 
And he says, yeah, just don't tell anyone. You have to understand from the perspective of the loyalists, the, the ones that are still in DOS, Nicole has broken a vow. And I really, I, I leave it to your imagination to really absorb how absolutely fucked up that is. Like, instead of like, oh, that's fucking terrible, their thought is, well, she broke a vow. She shouldn't have broke the vow. Like, no matter what happens to her. So my question is, what if he done something even worse? You know, had he, what, if he cut her leg off and then she spoke out about the abuse, had she still broken a vow? Like, what's the fucking limit you know, of where you hold on to this bullshit about you know, breaking a vow. You can tell I'm kind of angry about this. Right after the scene where Agnifilo um, says, you know, Keith has put his trust in me, and they cut to a shot outside the courthouse. It's of a wide shot. And I'm in the shot and a number of other people. And it, it makes me so sad because you can see me talking to my former editor. And this, this gentleman was my editor for many years um, in, in ESP. And I, he's still loyal, and I'm trying to reason with him. And it makes me so sad because I'm trying to get him to understand that what is going on is very bad, and I, and I just couldn't get through to him. It's like he just couldn't compute that it was bad. And so when, you know, when I see this moment um, from 2019, I'm just like, I just feel so devastated because, again, not a not a bad guy, just somebody, I think, who can't seem to... Um, get logic and emotions to work together. And I think because, because what the education did is emotionally stunted people very badly. I will tell you that the moment leading up to the verdict was fucking chaos. And we were in a house not far, I think it was Fort Greene. We were in Fort Greene and we were shooting uh, for the vow. And when the verdict came in, which I think was like three to four hours um, uh, after, we thought it was going to be days, it was three to four hours later, um, it was just fucking chaos. We just jumped into cars and we raced there. We were shooting with like iPhones and that shot you see of Bonnie running, uh, that's just with the iPhone. We're just shooting everything with the iPhone because we're trying to document everything as it's happening. And, you know, it was a surreal experience sitting in the courtroom watching the verdict. Um, he just sat there as each each charge got read out and, 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 you know, guilty, guilty, guilty. He just turned red. And by the way, the, the prosecution fucking slayed it. Um, Agnifilo just... I mean, I, I encourage those of you who have access to the transcripts, and I can certainly post them at some point. When you read Agnifilo's argument, you're like, what? And, and Mark Lesko came back in for, I guess you call it the redirect, and he just slaughtered Agnifilo. It was it was it was fucking legendary to watch. I'm very happy that I got to be in that courtroom in that moment. And you know, when I walk out of the courthouse, they cut early. Um, but what actually happens when I walk out of the courthouse is I, you know, all the network cameras are there, and I completely ignore them, and I walk up to the vow cameras, and I think I said, I think the first thing I said was. Um, I finally have something to say to Ranieri. Because at that point, I hadn't said a single thing publicly about him to him. Um, and I said, my only message to Ranieri is never bring word salad to a gunfight. Um, and then somebody 
said to me a few moments later, how do you feel? And it was weird because there was an a feeling of triumph, but at the same time, I said to him, I just see bloodshed everywhere. I just see bodies everywhere. And what was going on in my mind is it was sort of like a war metaphor. It was like the, the battlefield was drenched with blood and bodies. And what I meant by that is that the cost of taking this man down, the amount of people that had been hurt in the process was astonishing. Like everybody had been hurt. Everybody. And I was aware also the people that were, you know, um, very loyal to him had been hurt too, and they didn't even know it yet. So that's what I was experiencing. It was, it was this weird feeling of like the cost has been so high, you know, on, on all of us, on both sides of this war. Um, so I felt very, um, very sad, but at the same time, I think I was a bit manic as well at the same time. I mean, that, that whole statement of, you know, never bring word salad to a gunfight. I really did mean that. And I was, you know, very, very um, stoic, you know, in my delivery. But at the same time, underneath it was just this devastation of like winning a war and then looking around at just the bodies fucking everywhere. The moment when I call Sarah and I'm FaceTiming with her, um, it was very emotional watching it because, you know, there was this, there was this enormous sense of relief. And when I said to Sarah, you know, we can go back to, we can change our life now. We had been looking over our shoulder for, for years at that point. Um, never quite knowing what they might try to do it, do to us in the process of this war. And in that moment, I think all of us began to have this sense that maybe now we could potentially move on. Now, the sentencing hadn't happened yet, but um, the fact that he was guilty in all counts was a very good sign. I was marveling at the conversation when Ranieri and Nikki Klein are talking about the grave situation he's in. You know, the, the grave situation the Lord and Master is in. And that he could be killed in prison. And I was fascinated. Um, fascinated is not the right word. You'll, you, you'll know what I mean. I was amazed that he had an immense amount of concern for himself, as did she, but absolutely fucking zero concern for anybody else, including like the shit that Daniela went through for two years. No concern. That right there shows you the pathology. You know, the whole justice is blind movement, um, for a while I was commenting on social media and I was trying to get journalists to understand what they were looking at because they were starting to buy it. Like, oh, these guys are like standing up for people that are in prison and wrongfully incarcerated, blah, blah, blah. I've given up trying to, to interact about it on, on social media. Um, and listen, um, most of the, the, the loyalists have just blocked me. So, you know, that's that. But I, I did want to say that, you know, the whole Justice is Blind thing was this big Trojan horse. They didn't care about anybody else in prison. The only person they cared about was Ranieri. So the whole thing was a Trojan horse designed to make people think that, oh, they have this movement they care about. And that's what Ranieri always did. All the different movements in the end were to protect him and his ideas. And we were always sold it as this is important for the world. And so they're still going on this belief that this is important for the world. But the only person that's important 
out of the however many billion, there's nine billion now, the only person that's important is Keith Raniere. That is it in their mind. And I think the thing that's, that's again, sad is that these, these people that are loyal, they're sort of hapless people caught in this, this web of deceit and bullshit. And I don't know, maybe they'll always be caught in it. I don't know. I do not know. And the other thing is, they keep on trying to have a trial in public. But like, the trial's fucking done. I mean, Nippy and I talk about this all the time. The trial's done. It's fucking over. It's gone. They keep on trying to, you know, re-adjudicate the entire thing. They had their moment, you know. They, they could have gone on the stand. They could have defended him. They didn't. They all just, I don't know what they were doing. Um, and then suddenly they think, oh, now they're going to start to, like, you know, have a trial in public. When Moira Penza talks about the cease and desist letter that she sends to Gnifilo's office to get them to stop bothering her, um... She says something that's so important. She says, at Keith Raniere's direction, because she said they were doing this at Keith Raniere's direction, and that's what's so important. That's what people have to understand. Every single thing that they're doing is at his direction. And even if they haven't spoken to him for a while, they'll go back, I know, no doubt, and think about, well, what, would, what was the last thing he said to us? Let's just implement that thing. Um, they're just not thinking for themselves at all. So they're still, they're, they're very much caught. You know, they're still, they're still in, they're still in ESP trying to resurrect something that's gone. It's gone. When I see them, you know, the Nixium five, and there's many more than five, just so you know, that's just the, the, the public ones. When I see them trying to deliver that letter and how they send it out on, on, you know, email so excited they look like children to me. Um, little children who don't understand how the world works. And that is what the education did, by the way. It kept people like little children. And I was thinking to myself what the equivalent is of that, you know. And, you know, I was in the Boy Scouts when I was super little. And it almost feels like if I was in the Boy Scouts, which I was, and I sort of held on to that, you know, I still held on to that experience and I still talked like I talked when I was a, a Boy Scout. And I was attached to that and I was attached to all the, all the different things that we learned and I kept on talking about them. It, 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 it's sort of like I look back at myself with my little, you know, cocky shorts, you know, in the African bush with my spindly little legs and like I look, I look at them and I feel like that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at people stuck in some past and they haven't grown up. And when I see them dancing outside MDC uh, for an eerie, they say they're dancing for all the prisoners, but they're not, they're dancing for him. It's honestly one of the most fucking tragic things I've ever seen. Just watching that, just watching them. It's, it's, I don't have the, the right words for it. I mean, I could say pathetic, but it's just, it's tragic watching them dance for him outside um, that to me is, is the, is the deep sadness of what happens in these kinds of, um, organizations where the organization falls apart and a few people just hold on for dear life as though it is the only thing left in their life. And maybe it is, and maybe that's what's so sad. It, the thing is, it's not, there is so much more available, but it, I guess in their construct, it's the only thing left.
When Nikki is upset that her lawyer drops her and she seems really shocked, I think that's what I was trying to say. I, you know, I think that, that, that she seems, she has seemed so out of touch with reality, actual reality. And she believes, you know, Ranieri always talked about cause and effect. He said, you know, he was very reality based and he said every effect has a cause. And so she lives in the world of Ranieri's cause and effect universe. And, and in that moment, she bumps up against the actual universe, like actual reality. And I think it shocks her because there's this, there's this schism, I think, in her psyche in that moment. She's just so surprised because one of the things that, and I want to talk about, I want to dedicate a whole episode to this, but one of the things that, that cults do is they engender in everybody a kind of narcissism because the, the cult leader himself is so narcissistic and knows everything. And the people that are learning start to feel that they know everything. I know certainly for myself that was very true in the numerous organizations I've been in. I always thought I had the, the, the best secret right knowledge. And that's an extremely narcissistic position. And so you start to think like, well, well I know. I know better than this. I know better than the justice system. And I think in that moment, she's just so surprised, I think, that her version of the world is not working. She's not getting what she wants. And again, it's because these people are isolated from actual reality. Um, they're not dealing in the real world anymore. They're, they're living in a bubble in their mind. The part of the episode where you know the 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 filmmakers are starting to build compassion for nancy that's it's a very difficult uh moment for me um and again you know i go back to that moment when i when i come out of the courts and i see bloodshed everywhere because look every single person was damaged and and you know the and I understand that this episode is trying to show the gray, gray areas between victim and victimizer. Um, I understand that part intellectually. But it's very complex. And I think, you know, those of you that have read on my website my statement to the judge at Nancy Salzman's sentencing know that I have a particular upset. And my upset is, funnily enough, less about myself than about what was done to Bonnie. Because um, the wolf pack went after her and, and Nancy was part of that wolf pack. Um, and that has affected Bonnie very, very deeply to this day. So I struggle. I struggle with the compassion. Um, and it's funny, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, because I think I still have installed the idea that, well, I should have compassion. And that's, you know, years of, of, of education, not just, you know, in, 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 in recent cults. I think that's in my, in my upbringing, in my early religious upbringing. You know, one should have compassion. If you don't have compassion, you're a bad person. Like who said? Like who decided that, that, that it was bad not to have compassion? Definitely a, a good question, worthy of a lot of thought. When... Nancy's talking about Ranieri coming over and asking her to change Pam's bedding, but he wants her to make breakfast first. That is a shocking moment for her, and that's a demonstration, 
of who he really is. And I think that's, that is maybe the beginning of the end for her. That's one of the seeds. Because what you're actually looking at is a soulless person who says something like, well, let me make me breakfast first. That's a soulless person. You're dealing with what I call dark AI. You're dealing with the equivalent of, of, of ones and zeros, just no fucking feelings for other people. Just like I want my breakfast. That's, that's super fucked up. And then she comes to the understanding. She uses the bottle metaphor, you know. She talks about how she needs the bottle and then doesn't need the bottle. And this is the metaphor of how he sees the world. And that is very accurate. Honestly, one of the most accurate statements I've ever heard her say. Because that is how he sees people. As objects. I think I mentioned once before... Years ago, I was in, I think I was in Apropos, which is where a lot of trainings happened. And I said to him, you may have heard this before. I said to him, I don't understand how you were able to understand the mind of somebody with no conscience so well and their feelings or lack of feelings. And he said, well, let me give you a thought experiment. He loved the thought experiments. And he said, imagine that there are robots outside, AI outside, and they're trying to get in. And would you lie to them to have them go away that, that what they're looking for is not here? And I go, of course I'd lie to them. I, they're the fucking robots. He goes, exactly. That is how people with no conscience see human beings. And I was always amazed how he could come up with these metaphors. And I was always amazed how he knew the mind of a psychopath so well it just never occurred to me that these were autobiographical discussions. And I think in this moment, Nancy is coming finally to the realization of what I had been trying to say uh, for a long time of like, oh, we're just pawns. We're just objects. We're like nothing. He, he, and it's funny because he would talk about the ability to project yourself into somebody else, but he didn't know how to do it. He knew the mechanics of it because I do think that Ranieri has uh, a cognitive understanding of empathy. I'm just not sure there's an emotional experience of it. I want to say as well, I know people are infuriated about um, the Vow season two giving loyalists screen time. But it's really so important to see their perspective. To see that despite fucking mountains, as, as Nippy says, fucking Everest, mountains of evidence, they cannot see it. It's just not there for them. It's like they've erased it all. And I think it's important as well because when you see the structure of that, it's important to know that that is a microcosm of things that are happening in society at large at the moment. There are people that are literally ignoring um, all kinds of things, and it scares the shit out of me. It's not, it doesn't just happen in some weird fucking sex cult, as people call it. It's happening on a global scale, and it's scary. When Ranieri, uh, as Ignifilo is crossing the, the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, um, he's talking about how Ranieri says, My life is in your hands. He ends every meeting with, My life is in your hands. And I was like, Oh, that's the same shit he would pull on us. Um, 
Ranieri's making everybody else responsible for his life, for, for the magnificent, important, unique life that he is. And he's trying to in, sort of engender in them this, this feeling of guilt. But I guess it didn't work because Agnifilo's closing argument was really, it was weak. It, it was pretty, it was juvenile and transparent. It just, well, clearly it didn't work. But I thought it was stupid. Watching the actual sentencing is is very is very very emotional for me because I know I know each of the people speaking so well I've known them for so long and you know some of us shared with each other uh, you know what we were going to say at the sentencing so I, I I was I was blown away by the courage of a lot of the people that have been fucked over. And I'm also really happy that the the statement I made to the judge that it did actually have an effect on um, Nancy. I am very very happy to hear that. Um, somebody said to me that 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 was a very significant moment that helped her um, come to terms with some things. So I think that's I think that's cool. But at the same time, you know, I'm I'm happy that she got to sort of feel the depth of what had been done. But I can clearly see the conflict that she's having, you know, in, in that moment. And it's, it's, it is complex because, you know, Nancy's question, you know, where she says, so did he do good so he could do evil? Um, yeah. Yeah, Nancy. He did good so he could do evil because he calculated what people believed and felt good was. And he captured people based on their yearning for goodness and their yearning to connect with their deepest values. That's how he captured everybody. And once they were in that fucking love net, he did horrible things to them over decades this confusion that people have about the abuser having done good things and then they do bad things. Um, you know, there's a bunch of metaphors that I've, I've used for this again and again. And, you know, one, one of the metaphors is, you know, they have to give you honey to give you poison. If they say, I'm going to give you poison, you don't want it. But if they give you honey and then introduce poison bit by bit, you're going to go for it because you want the honey. Or in an abusive relationship, you know, the abuser often, especially if it's, if it's a narcissist, will often shower the person with, you know, flowers and attention and love and adoration and all kinds of things. And it will ignite in the person this, this feeling of, I found the one, I found union with, the, with, with, with love. And that has to be there to allow them to do the bad shit. And People have to understand that the, the, the good stuff draws people in, but it's, it's a ruse for control. And what eventually it will cause is the annihilation of a person's soul. And I say it again, eventually it will cause the annihilation of a person's soul unless they can get out. Agnifilo says in his office, Nixim was le legitimate. It was a legitimate thing. And I just want to say, Mark, 
No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. And the fact that he still believes that after the trial is, is a little scary. It wasn't. It was a Trojan horse that was used to funnel innocent people into his private fucking depraved hell. That is not legitimate. When Nancy is struggling with the thought that the curriculum is somehow different from Ranieri, um, again, I want to go back to the funnel thing. You know, she's, she's, she's trying to keep separate Ranieri's depravity and who he really is and, and the curriculum, and, and she thinks they're different, but they're not. They're not different. This is the thing she can't see, which many people couldn't see, by the way. Many people had that struggle. So many people would argue with us whistleblowers like in 2017, but they did good things, but I had a good experience. I mean, yeah, yeah, of course. You got the honey. You got the flowers. You got the good, you got the good stuff. Yeah, but this should also happen. And people struggle with it. They cannot make sense of it. And look, I think, it, I think for myself as well, I think that was my struggle, is I couldn't make sense of how could a man who taught these things that touched me so deeply actually be this kind of person? It was so difficult for me to make sense of. And again, part of it was because I was attached to those values so much, and then I had attached him to those values. Once you detach the leader from those values you will finally realize that they are your own values. That's why you love them so much. That's why you gravitated to them so much. And that's why you want them so much. Not because of them, because of you. And for Nancy, this is her sort of bridge over the River Kwai that she just can't let go of the fucking bridge, um, her creation. She can't let go of it. When she says that, you know, 17,000 people came through and, and none of the bad stuff happened in the curriculum, again, I've, t I've said it's not true. But what she doesn't understand about the curriculum that she created is that it was data mining for weakness. And then it was comparing, comparing that to an impossible standard so that everybody started to feel like they were failing. And so you, you began to dug, dig deeper and deeper into your own failures um, because you thought that if you dug deeper and deeper into your failures, somehow that would make things better. But all that happened is the chasm between who you thought you were, this horrible piece of shit, and this ideal self that you were being sold became larger and larger and larger, and everybody got more and more fucked up and depressed and psychotic. That... That aspect of the curriculum, that was the funnel that in the end caused all the abuse. And I, and I have people reaching out to me in social media saying, what about using the good stuff? Well, you know, what about this? What about, go find something else that doesn't involve coercion because this shit involves coercion. On a slightly lighter note for a second, I'm very happy to see Nancy drinking wine. I think that's a very good choice. Uh, there should have been a lot more wine in the ESP. I would have loosened everybody up. You know, maybe the ethics police would have been less fucking insane and intense. The moment where Nancy starts to fall apart on camera and she says she doesn't know whether she's doing good things or bad things. 
That is what this kind of psychosis, this, this psychosis-inducing brainwashing does. It puts you in such a mind spin that you can't tell up from down. And that, by the way, is how I think people get radicalized to do terrible, terrible, terrible things to other people. And when I say terrible things, I mean like murdering people, you know, blowing other people up because they think it's the path to goodness. This kind of scrambling, you know, it, to, to the mind is, is one of the, the, the mechanisms that ends up in a very, very dark place. When you cut to the Marriott and then you cut inside and you see Nancy in the hotel, I, I have such weird memories. The Marriott is where Bonnie and I stayed during, during the trial and also uh, in, in the many, many meetings with the, the government before the trial, uh, we stayed there. And what a lot of people don't know is um, the defense attorneys were actually in the lobby one day and were taking photographs of me in the lobby. They didn't realize I saw them taking photographs. I think that's called witness intimidation. Naughty, naughty, naughty attorneys. What they don't know is I took photographs back when they weren't looking. Well, that's a story for another day. But that was a, a deeply fucked up moment that I experienced in the Marriott. But... Anyway, back to, to Nancy. Um, when I watch her cry, I can, I, I can relate in the sense that, you know, the horror of what you wake up to is so fucking awful. And for me, the wake up was my, my psyche cracked. And that's what it looked like, you know, like sobbing from the soul. Um, so I, in that way, I can relate um, to that level of pain. What I'm not clear about, though, is, is, is what is she crying for? Is she crying for herself? Or is she crying for everybody else? Because I mentioned this before. You know, a number of people had given Nancy feedback over the years, and I gave her feedback once. And, and the, the response was always the same. It was basically just that kind of crying. And... I began to realize like with certain kinds of personalities, like if you say something to them and they feel hurt, almost as a distraction, they start crying and crying and crying and crying. But what they're crying about is themselves. They're feeling victimized. They're not necessarily crying about the thing that happened and the other people that were hurt. So for me, I don't know because I don't live inside of her in that moment. I don't know what it's about, but it did get me thinking about that. But, you know, at the same time, I will say that it was about this point in the in the episode, I just started weeping and weeping. And again, I was weeping for the tragedy of everything and everybody that had been hurt. And it, I was weeping even for the people that don't know they're hurt. And I've told you guys that, you know, I see people, some of the loyalists, I see them on social media and I see them talking on YouTube and like they're shell-shocked, some of them. They're in, they're in another kind of cult. They have a different cult leader now. Um, but they're shattered. They just don't know it. And they're using every ounce of control they have to keep their shit together. And it doesn't work because the trauma is still there. And, and it's waiting to come to the surface and hopefully to the conscious surface one day. The other thing that I struggled with watching Nancy fall apart is this 
feeling that I've had my whole life, and I think it comes from my childhood, and made worse by cults, I feel responsible for everything. Um, and when I see Nancy falling apart, I feel personally so responsible for her pain. And I know people that have been in cults and abusive relationships can relate to what I'm saying. Like it's my fault. And intellectually, I get that I did not design this cult and that the blame for her pain rests with the maniac Ranieri. But I was taught, you know, my whole life, responsibility, 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 you know, and as a guy, responsibility, responsibility. And then, you know, finally getting into ESP, everything was about responsibility. Ranieri talked about responsibility all the time. Taking responsibility, searching for your responsibility, finding your responsibility, that, you know, your potency would be, would be found in your ability to take responsibility for as many things as you can. And so that program was so strong. And so when I watch the devastation, I have this fucked up feeling like I'm, I'm responsible for that. You know, I caused that. And I, and I know I struggled with that at the beginning and I thought I didn't have that anymore until this moment. And in this moment, I'm like, oh, it's still there. I still feel this deep sense of responsibility. You know, I felt a responsibility inside the cult. And then once I woke up, I felt this Im Im immense responsibility and still to this day do to make things better in, in the ways that I can. So that's like a kind of a fucked up part that I, I really need to still, you know, uh, work with. And it's a very somatic thing. It's not intellectual because intellectually I completely understand, but it's very somatic and that's the work I still need to do. I do want to share that like, you know, Sarah on camera, you know, who's, who's grateful that Lauren doesn't get put in prison and has time served instead. Um, I felt the same way. Um, I did not write anything negative about Lauren. And I, again, you, you know, I've shared with you guys before, I, I feel a sense of tragedy for her and what she's been through in her life. And, and I'm well aware of the way she participated in other people's pain. But I was very happy to know that she did not have to go to prison. That is not what she needs right now at all. Um, when I see the pictures of the past, and there's many pictures of the past, you know, and I, see, I saw a picture of, of Lauren and Nancy, which I don't know if I took that. Maybe somebody else took I think somebody else took that. But I have this feeling of such devastation because what I feel I'm looking at is I'm looking at the dream of Camelot um, that turned out to be hell. We were being sold Camelot. In fact, the first year at V-Week, the play that was done was Camelot. And so we were all sold Camelot. And I, and I feel the tragedy that it wasn't Camelot. It was actually something quite evil. You know, sort of like if I, if I think of two plays that were done in V Week, Sweeney Todd and Camelot, we were being sold Camelot, but it was actually Sweeney Todd. You know, that's actually what was going on. Um, and I don't feel as much pain. I feel some pain for myself about that, but mostly as I see these pictures and I see a lot of wonderful, wonderful people from the past who may have gone through or are going through that kind of devastation, all I, all I can say is I can relate and I know what that's like. 
And it's a terrible, terrible thing. And I think it happens in a lot of cults. I think it happens in religion when people are confronted with abuse in different churches. You know, you're sold this magnificent world and then you find out that it was a veneer for evil. Um, that does something very deep to one's soul. My overwhelming feeling from this, this episode is, is, again, tragedy, this, this feeling of tragedy. I see so much pain. And I do hope for most of the people that, that resurrection could happen. I think in the case of Renieri that resurrection can't happen because there's not enough in there to have that happen. But I do hope for most people that resurrection could happen. Um, because I think the moral injuries are very, very deep. Um, very, very deep. I know for myself, they have been profoundly deep. And I can imagine for other people. And certainly for the people that, um, you know, were, were prosecuted. And there are some that were never prosecuted. And I don't know if they've realized what happened or not. But there's some, there's some dark shit that happened. I know that these kinds of the kinds of scars that come from moral injury, I, I think they, they go to your grave, but I do think that there can be a resurrection. And I think it depends on how one leads one's life from that point on. I think that the narration at the end, which which is Nancy, was was amazing. And I actually wrote it down because I really, really liked it. Um she says at the end, I think most people look at the story and say that could never happen to me. And we don't realize that it's very similar to things that happen every day. It's just exaggerated. People trade away the things they really want to because they don't want to create a catastrophe or they don't want to end a marriage or they don't want to quit their job. And they walk in every day and they make another trade, another trade, another trade. And they end up losing themselves in that. So I think it's not as strange a story as one might think. And I got to say, I, I really like that because that is, is very much a sentiment that I share. It's such a salacious story, you know, with Hollywood starlets and all kinds of bullshit like that, that people may miss how it relates to everything else that's happening in the world. Um, this shit is far more common than people realize. And, and I have been studying voraciously, you know, as I make uh, my next project, Empathy Not Included, about how these kinds of abuses occur, you know, from romantic relationships to families to, you know, uh, groups to churches, to, you know, to cults, to corporations, to, to you know, uh, political parties, to entire countries. It's all the same pattern just at a different scale. And so it's really important to be able to see the pattern and not just get lost in like, oh, that shit's really fucked up. Um, there's a lot of fucked up shit that's happening in the world. So I am, I was fucking flattened by this, this episode. I, I am recording this the morning after. I had the strangest night. So much pain. Um... 
And you know, you know those moments, have you ever had a moment where you, you're like, you were in shock but didn't realize you were in shock and then suddenly later you just burst out crying? And that's kind of what happened to me. This morning I couldn't stop crying. It just, it was so much, so much came up. So much. And I know for most of you, it's a story that you weren't involved in that you can perhaps relate to. And I think that's good. But I think for a lot of us, and I know a lot of people that were ex-ESP are watching, for a lot of us, whew, it's intense. It's very, very intense. So I think, you know, now that we've gotten to the end of episode six, I really need to take a break from the subject. Um, I need some time now to process a lot of things. A lot of complexities came up in this episode. And, you know, I know uh, my dear friends who made the vow are always fascinated in the gray areas. And I think the gray areas are important. And that doesn't mean you don't hold people accountable and that justice shouldn't happen. But there is so much gray in these kinds of things. And I think it's really important to see what is happening on the other side as well. So me and my bag of emotions are going to sign off. I, again, want to thank everybody who took this uh, profound journey with me on this podcast. Um, I do appreciate it. And again, I, I really appreciate some of the messages have been so profound. Some of the messages I've just, you know, burst out crying. I have got messages from soldiers that have been through wars and the messages are profound, profound. So thank you. Now, let me just get to one piece of business <laughs> with my tears. I said at the beginning that I'm looking for two kinds of stories still for the film Empathy Not Included. We have a lot of amazing stories. Um, so again, you know, if, if you know of anybody or you have a story about abuse, narcissistic abuse in the workplace, you know, please go to that URL, uh, markvicente.com forward slash your story. Um, and if you are a guy or know another guy who's been through narcissistic abuse from a woman, I'd love to know that story as well. So please go to that same URL. And as I said, you know, it's, it's much rarer, that kind of abuse with men, but it does occur. Um, and I will be back in a while on the podcast, and I'm not sure what I'm going to be talking about next. I have a whole bunch of ideas. I am certain that I will touch on some of the, the Nixium stuff, um, you know, as this year closes out and, and next year. But I think I'm not going to go in, in as much depth anymore about it. I'm going to save all of that for my book. Um, there are hundreds of stories and things that happened and, and characters that are completely fascinating that never made it into the vow. And some of those things I want to touch on. So again, thank you. And we will talk soon. Oh,